I'm Mel Kettle, and you're listening to This Connected Life, the show where connected leaders share their experience, values, and strategies that have helped them become more connectable so they achieve success in life and business. Welcome back to This Connected Life. This episode I have been looking forward to for such a long time because I'm introducing you to my beautiful friend, Kim Stockham. Kim and I met, oh, I don't even remember when we met. It was a while ago. I think I'd just started my business and you were working from home in Brisbane, working for somebody, maybe What If, at the time, 10, 12, 14 years ago, ages ago. And um, Kim lives in Singapore now. So Kim is the uh, corporate communications, head of corporate communications for the Expedia Group in Asia Pacific. And her role is dedicated to communications, which help elevate the Expedia Group brand and the team in Asia Pac. And she gets to travel a lot. And we're currently sitting in Brisbane in a hotel because she's here for one night or two <laughs> nights, I think, before having a holiday in Australia with her family. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about is how she works remotely, as well as how she works with a team face-to-face. And one of the things that happened to Kim earlier this year that I was so excited about was that she was honoured in the global Top Women in PR 2019 Awards. So hopefully you'll enjoy our conversation with Kim Stockham. Welcome, Kim. Hi, Mel. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> it's so good to see you. We were trying to work out when we last caught up and it's sometime in the last 18 months. It was more months. than weeks. It was yeah. more than weeks. It's been a while. It has been way too long. My first question that I always ask is what does connection mean to you? I actually think it's core to who I am, but I went to a course recently, thanks to Expedia, and I was called out in this group of people as a super connector, which I took a great deal of pride in, but I also wanted to understand. And it turns out I think about connections a little bit differently to some of the other people in the room anyway. And one is that I have this really strong love of meeting people, meeting friends, traveling, and learning. And the other is that I'm very strategic about connections. So for me, I figure out who I need to get to meet or have someone else meet to get an outcome done. And if that means involving people in a group decision, if that means bringing people in to fast track a project, I do that. I think that's why we get on because I've been called a super connector by quite a few people as well, because I also love bringing people together to help them achieve whatever it is that they want to achieve. And when you meet people and they start to tell you about who they are and what they do, does your brain automatically think you need to meet this person, you need to meet that person, you should meet this person? I don't know if I have that conscious thought. Well, I at least didn't until recently. But one one of the things that um, a friend of mine in Singapore told me recently was a lesson said to her, which was the kindest thing you can do is to show your friends. And so now when I meet people, I am more consciously thinking, I must get these people together. They're going to get along so well. I love that. And I've always shared my friends as well. But I remember I went to a party Oh, probably when I was in my early 20s with a girlfriend who I'd known since I was in high school. And all of her friends were quite disparate. And the only time she ever brought them together was once a year for a party. And I said, why don't you introduce us more often and connect us more often? And she said, oh, no, I like to keep my friendship groups all completely separate. Was that me? No, it wasn't I, I used you. to be no, that person. Wasn't. But I remember yeah. thinking how selfish because I'd <laughs> never thought about it that way. I didn't think I did it consciously, but I did have a party and I did – 
I'm not a party person, really. I really am not. I like going to parties, but I'm not a party host. But this one time I did get a group of people together and I remember looking around thinking nobody knows each other. And so there was a kind of a aha moment for me, I guess. And that's what this party was like. And it was I found it really hard because as an introvert and somebody who was then really shy, the only person I knew was the host and one other girl who we'd also gone to school with who I didn't really know very well because we weren't friends at school. We weren't not friends. We just weren't part of that same circle. And I remember thinking, how is it that I've known this woman for at that stage more than half my life and yet I don't know most of her friends? I think it came, well, at least for me, it came from having a life that was pretty disconnected. I had my work life. I had my probably my boyfriend at the time or I have my family and I just think the world has changed. At least my world has changed. So we don't have the sort of lives that we can keep disconnected anymore. And I think social media has something to do with that, but just also the way we work and our connectedness at work. And so everybody knows everything. If you can compartmentalize now, good luck to you, but I I can't do it anymore. So everyone just tends to know everything about me. We had a dinner party about, I don't know, four or five years ago, and I invited a client who was a friend who was he he was divorced and had had a new partner but she couldn't come and I invited a few other friends and through the conversation it turned out that one of the other friends was really good friends with this particular client's ex-wife and all I could think was oh my god this could be a disaster but fortunately (laughs) he and his ex were on reasonably good terms not amazing but you know not bad and I just remember at the end of the night Sean said to me I think you need to send a survey out to your friends to make sure that, that you have a good understanding of what all the interrelationships are between them before they turn up and you discover something oh potentially gosh. quite embarrassing. <laughs> well, you know, funnily enough, I I actually think of connections, I think you can map connections at least into a couple of categories. And so one of the projects that you can do for yourself if you want to be more connected or you feel like maybe your connections are all friendships and they don't lead to anything is to map them in maybe three categories. And so if I can remember the categories, definitely the first one is friends and family. And they're the people closest to you. You support them. You get involved in charities. Maybe it's it's definitely a support network. And then the next category I call get stuff done which is your, it's maybe when, you know, I'm a parent as well. And so sometimes you're in parent WhatsApp groups trying to figure out what does my kid have to wear to school on Friday for dress up or whatever. And so you've got this sort of get stuff done group of people and they're somewhat close to you, probably colleagues, sometimes friends. And then there's the third, third set, which is more of a strategic connection group, which might be people that you might call on to be a referee, people that might be a mentor a LinkedIn contact that you think, oh, that's an interesting title. Yes, I accept straight away. And so that's how I kind of think of the buckets. And if you have too many friends, but you're actually figuring out why am I not getting places in my career, you might need to think about, well, I only have get stuff done people. I don't have the leadership. I don't have the influences. I'll need to think about building out that category in a really strategic way. Have you read Janine Garner's book? I've forgotten what it's called, but she talked and I don't know, put the title of it in the show notes for anybody who's listening, but she talks about how you need 12 people in your life, a network of 12, and each of those 12 people have a specific role in your life. And so you have a supporter and you have a nurturer and you have you know 10 others. And they're not necessarily friends, but they're sometimes they are. Sometimes they're mentors, sometimes they're colleagues. Um, your partner or your spouse might be one of them or it might not be. 
And it's really interesting exercise to go through these 12 kinds of people to see how many of them you have. And she talks about if you're in a leadership role or if you're in business for yourself, you want somebody from all of those 12 groups who will help elevate you and move you through your goals that you might have. See, I knew I would learn something today. I knew I would have a little, I love learning. And so I'll take, I actually don't have a pen within reach, which is very unlike me. I would normally (laughs) take a note, take a note. I need to, I need to read that book. That's my holiday reading. I'll make a note of it. I'll. Yes, I would love that. Let me stop talking. (laughs) I'll do a little Google search and I'll, yeah, let you know and pop it in the show notes. But it's such a great book. And it's a really interesting exercise because when I did it, I've got a really big network and I thought I'll easily find the 12 people and I realized I actually only had probably two or three of them that fit her categories and a lot of other people I had were friends or often acquaintances and I thought oh I need to you know and then it's like how do you move people from one to the other in a way that feels not too uncomfortable that's it but then when you're in business or when you've got career aspirations, how do you bring people in in a way that doesn't seem mercenary, that seems, you know, I, I'd like you, I like you and I'd like to get to know you better and by the way, this is what I want the role for you to be in my world. <laughs> yeah, I probably haven't got that quite figured out yeah. yet, but I know exactly what you're talking mm. about. And I think sometimes, well, you know, one of the things that I decided I needed a couple of years ago was a mentor, this idea of a mentor. So it was the weirdest thing I'd done. I emailed a couple of people I work with who work in maybe different countries to say, hi, you don't know me very well. You don't work in my area, but I would, would you be interested in being my mentor? And they emailed me back just as weirdly saying, maybe, what would that require of me? And it was a very awkward situation. So I certainly don't have it figured out, but I now do have a couple of mentors in my life. Well, I could think of them as mentors in my life, but it was a more natural progression than a cold call email from Kim. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's a lot of, like I've had a lot of unofficial mentors throughout my career and I do a lot of mentoring of people now, but it's part of my service offering and people pay me to mentor them. And I think there's this often this disconnect between do you want me to provide help and support and guidance as a friend or a friend or or do you want to pay somebody to mentor you in a specific way to help you get up that next rung of whatever it is that you might be having trouble with kind of like a coach but a bit more than a coach or different to a coach I find coaching one of the hardest things if you can do that Mel then I I take my hat off to you because I'm a person who likes to solve problems so if somebody needs help I go I know what to do you need to do this and that Whereas I've learned that coaching is much more questioning and coercing and gentle nudging people towards um, their own solution to the problem. And Mm. personally, I find it really thrilling when I'm coached, but I find it very hard to coach others. There's a couple of other great books that you should read. One is by a friend of mine, Karen Morley, and she's written a book called A Leader as Coach. And it's all about how as a leader, a, a leader of people, you can become their coach. So rather than when they come to you with something, rather than saying, here's what you need to do. It it is about how do you ask them questions? What are the questions you ask? And then how do you help them become better leaders through asking questions of the people that are reporting into them or that they're meant to be supporting? Oh my gosh, I feel tired already. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, I like it. I'm very outcome focused. I'm like, what are we doing? How are we doing it? Great. Let's go do it. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes people don't learn. Like I had a boss years ago who was great in a lot of ways and I learned a lot from her. But whenever I gave her something to review, she just covered it in red ink and said, make these changes. 
and there was no explanation as to why I needed to make the changes, what was wrong with it. There was no guidance around what I could be doing differently or better. She just said, I don't like it, do it this way. So it got to the point again and again and again of me giving her things that I thought were fantastic and that she just red inked and I never learned because she didn't ever take the time to say, this is what's missing, can you go back and do it with these bits? Or have you thought about this angle or have you thought about putting this in? It was just, here's my way, do it. One of the things that I do at Expedia Group is look after sort of sign-off and compliance globally, which probably sounds very exciting to most of you. Um, I actually... I actually like it. I like that editing stage. But what I have had to learn, and anyone from Expedia listening might think I need to learn a little bit more, but I tend to make edits now that are essential. And then in the email, I might put suggestions that differentiates my opinion from compliance. And that was a lesson. I don't know if everyone else has to do this, but you know, sometimes opinions can be different. My way and your way might actually lead to the same outcome. And I've had to simplify. Yeah. One of the things I learned when I wrote my book was that just because I sent it to an editor and she had recommendations and suggestions didn't mean I needed to agree with them. And so while obviously I paid her to do a job that she did really, really well, and I'm using her for my next book, there were some things that she said and I just said to her, I don't agree with you for these reasons. And I remember when she said to me, you don't have to agree with me. They're suggestions. They're not. Yeah, it's powerful. It was. And she said there's some things I'm going to suggest far more heavily than others (laughs) because they're wrong. (laughs) She sounds like a super connector. (laughs) She was fantastic. But it was just, it was really, when I got my first batch of edits back, it was quite confronting because it was my book and I was so invested in it compared to when I did work for other people where it was just like, oh, yeah, that's just, you know, one thing. Where was I going with that? Um, And I think it's how you deliver it and the expectation that you have as well. But she's not my boss. Like I pay her for a service, which is very different from when you're attempting to learn how to do something better. Yeah. It's sort of reminding me of we were talking about mentorships and my mind has gone back there. Um, I For a little while in my life I I taught and lectured um, at QUT and I loved my time at QUT and I, I really miss that academic environment. When I'm in academic environment, I also miss corporate. Um, But I met a student there who stayed in really close touch with me and I've watched her career grow and grow. She's an amazing person. And uh, we were recently sort of corresponding back and forth just on LinkedIn. And we decided that reverse mentorship wasn't the right term for what we had. But maybe there's something like an infinity mentorship because she still looks to me for sort of advice and the way I think about things, but I'm often looking to her for her view as well. Now she's exceptional in her career. And we were like, "There is there a term for that where you you really see each other as mentors, but in a non-traditional way? Mm. I love that movie, The Intern, with Robert De Niro oh, and Anne Hathaway, where they have this mutual relationship. But I loved that she wanted an intern who was older, who could help her understand different things. Different viewpoints. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're so alike. Oh, we yeah. are. We, we are. have a giggle. Where's the champagne? <laughs> That's a really good point. I'm drinking ginger tea. It's really not. <laughs> yeah, I should have thought about this differently. Four o'clock on a Friday afternoon, maybe we'll have to go and have a champagne. Guess what? I have finish. some in the fridge. <gasps> Surprise. Perfect. <laughs> That's a different conversation. That is. I just want to take a little segue. When you took up your latest role, part of the deal was that you had to move to Singapore from Brisbane. How did you make that decision? Because that's a big step to make and you had a young family at the time or one young child Mm. and one who Mm -hmm. was a little bit older. Yeah. 
But how did you start that conversation with your husband and your kids and what prompted you to say yes? There's something in me that really loves and I'm, I'm ready to fly. I don't know if it's fight or flight somewhere in me, but I'm always ready to say yes. So the two parts of my brain says, I should be sensible. I should think about this. We should map it out. But the one that wins, the part of my brain that wins is like, that sounds like fun. Let's go. And so I literally picked up the phone and I said to my husband, Jace, Sarah Gavin has asked me if I would like this role, but I need to move to uh, Singapore. What do you think? And he said, let's do it. So I'm very lucky. I live with someone just as crazy as me. And I will say that the repercussions are much harder. There are, there is many tears, a lot of turmoil. You know, it's ongoing, this sort of getting used to being in a new place and in, in a new school. And you really question if you made the right choice. But I think my emotions always win out. And I'm exactly the same as I was when I was. I think I was 23 and I got offered a job at my first job in Brisbane, actually. And I was living in Newcastle with my mom and dad. And they said, hey, why don't you move to Brisbane? And I said, okay. And I told my mom and she said, when are you going? And I said, Monday. And that was Saturday <laughs> afternoon. Like, I, I've just got something crazy in me. Yeah. Well, I moved to Brisbane on a whim. Not really a whim. Well, kind of a whim. I moved to Vancouver on a whim and hated lots of things in my life. And my brother was living there and he said, well, come over. And so five weeks later, I did. There's something so exciting. <laughs> I must say, it's a lot easier if you're single. And I oh was. Oh my gosh, I've moved yeah. a few times when you're single and it's, you know. It's way easier. You can go. Yeah. But um, yeah, a family, it's much harder. And honestly, my daughter's now 13. And uh, to move now, I would really have to try to squash my first instinct and say, gosh, is this the right move for her? But I suspect first instinct would still win. You have another person in the equation now who has to buy into the decision, whereas when you moved to Singapore, she was so much younger. So mm, it was, was easier to make a decision for her because she was, I guess, maybe a bit too young to have an informed, valid reason for not going. She did tell me she'd prefer to go to boarding school than move to Singapore, but we dragged her along. Excellent. She's fine. She happy now? Yeah, she's great. She's now fluent in Chinese. So, oh, my God. You know, there are pros and cons, I guess, and that was probably one of the pros. I can't believe she's 13 because when mm. we met, you were pregnant with her. Oh, is that right? Yeah, oh, yeah. my gosh. Let's not talk about that. Maybe you hadn't even – maybe you weren't even pregnant. Maybe No, I would have been pregnant. You might have yeah. been. Yeah, I would have been. That's when I moved back to Brisbane. Okay, then you would have been because you'd only been back for a couple of months when we met. Yeah, and I was working from home. Oh, you my were. gosh. I just remember the question you asked me yeah. ages ago, working from home. And I remember oh, – yeah. Because that was about the time I started my business and I worked from home as well. Yes. Someone said that I've got two friends who work from home. You should meet each other. Yeah. But my work from home situation was so different to yours because I worked for myself. So I had freedom and flexibility and could go out and work from a cafe or have coffee with people whenever I wanted to, whereas you were chained to a laptop or a computer and a phone. And I remember a couple of times we tried to catch up for a coffee and you said, I've got back-to-back -back teleconferences for seven hours tomorrow. I remember. And I'm I was just actually like, working at Travelocity. <laughs> I was actually working for Travelocity. I'd, I'd lived in Singapore. This is my second stint in Singapore. My first stint, I'd been there seven years when I moved back. And, yeah, I was head of corporate comms for Travelocity That's APAC right. at the time. And, yeah, that was full on. I always do full on things. Yeah, I remember that. How did you find working from home? And how do you – one of the things that I know you do now is a lot of your team is remote. So how do you stay connected with a remote team? as well as with your team in your office in Singapore? I mean, I think I'm pretty good at working remotely and I suspect lots of people who are the only person who does what they do in a company as lots of heads of things are, 
you're pretty disciplined. So, I mean, I don't have anyone in my direct team that works with me in Singapore. I'm lucky that I have a flexible workplace in Singapore. So while I'm usually at the office, I don't have to be. But what you have to do is actually, number one, just be really disciplined. I used to in Brisbane, get up, get dressed. Well, maybe I didn't put my shoes on, but I pretty much sat at my PC or whatever and shut the door and I worked. Now I am just as disciplined, but my work hours are I mean, I report to New York, so that's a 12-hour time difference to Singapore. So 7 a.m. in New York is 7 p.m. in Singapore. So my pain is also my manager's pain. So we we just have to work crazy hours. And if you if you do team meetings, you have to get up for them. But honestly, we try to record them now. So tip number tip number one is be disciplined. Tip number two is try to do video calls. So most of our meetings, most of my meetings with people around the world are with video on. I think that really helps. It's a little bit invasive. You see where people live and sometimes people walk behind them and you just have to get used to that. And once you get past that, it's really liberating to see someone's face when you're talking to them. And then the third thing is you can't take advantage of people and always have them on a 10 p.m. call. So we have a series of maybe three different time zones for weekly or biweekly meetings. So one's going to be in your time zone, one's going to be slightly out of your comfort zone, and then the third one will be in the middle of the night, and that one you are expected to watch the recording within 24 hours. That sounds really fair. We try. I think. Yeah. Our team tries. Particularly when you first started, video conferencing was prohibitively expensive because I remember doing a few video conferences 10, 12 years ago, and the logistics involved was insane whereas now you can just pick up your phone hit facetime and well there's there something's never changed there is a little bit of can you hear me and hey i can't log on and there's always that kind of stuff but yeah um, there it's is really, it really is empowering to see someone's face um and for them to see your true reactions because sometimes you can hold things back in a phone call personally i quite like teleconferences without the video because <laughs> i can be in my pajamas and i can pull faces and if people are annoying the crap out of me they will never know <laughs> but in a video conference you have to have your face on like you have to have your as though you were in the same room as somebody yeah because they can see well sometimes if i'm working on easily. something like a big m a deal and i'm actually working within seattle time zone and it really is a crazy time of the morning for me or the evening i still try to get up get dressed put my makeup on do my hair it sounds ridiculous but i also want to be that person to our corporate development team that's true. Yeah. I had a call the other day, which I thought was a phone conference and it was a video conference. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just there going, just give me two minutes to get dressed and put some underwear on. <laughs> There's a couple of video conferencing systems that sort of yeah. automatically, yeah. it's camera on. So no, I put a post-it note over my... This one was just hit the, I hadn't hit the camera button, so they couldn't see me and everybody else I could see. And I just went, I'm just going to get a cup of tea. <laughs> Quick. <laughs> yeah. There are lies and there are lies. That's exactly right. Corporate comms has changed, obviously, enormously since we both started our careers some time ago, not saying when. Other than the obvious, new technology, social media, what are some of the more noticeable changes that you've observed over the last 15 to 20 years or that you've had to work around or work with? Yeah, I was. you gave me a heads up that you were going to ask me this, so I was really thinking about it. And I was really thinking, has corporate comms changed or have I changed? And it's probably a bit of both. And so from the corporate comms side, I think what has changed is we may not be excellent at sort of having a mathematical equation that shows our value, but I actually think people value corporate comms. They now see it as crucial to reputation. 
building, reputation protection through issue readiness and response, and they know that they can come from trusted advice. What's changed for me is that I realize the implications of that advice. I feel it in my heart a lot more strongly. I realize how brave you have to be to tell some of the most senior people in the organization to do something differently, to please not do something, Um, that their messaging maybe requires some changes. And so probably what I've had to get good at is hardly ever say no. I'm just really quite good at now saying, well, that's an interesting perspective, but how about we try this or another version of no? So actually a lot of my day is no, but in the nicest possible way. Yeah. Or have you thought about? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I wrote a blog post earlier in the year about how to say no elegantly. Oh my gosh, I should read that. I'll send it to you. I'll put it in the show notes. (laughs) But it was things like, it was in in the context of people ask you to do things either as a consultant or as an employee and you don't want to, how do you say no? One of the ways I say no, when somebody says to me, I'd like to work with you and I'm not interested for whatever reason, then I just say it's not right for me right now or I can't fit it in or let me recommend somebody else who I think would be better for you because of A, B and C. Well, you will love this. In, in, <clears throat> my, in my team, we have a bit of a promise to each other, which is, I guess, a saying, which is clear is kind, unclear is unkind. If you can be as clear as possible, and that sounds pretty clear, I think it's kind. Yeah, I think so too. One of my mentors says, a confused mind says no. Ah, interesting. And I love also that, which that is down. very similar because if you if you don't understand what you're being asked to do or how you're being asked to behave, your mind will automatically shut down and block it out. And or your your first instinct will be to say no, I'm not interested in that. So how can you clarify what it is that you want? And good communications comes down to clarity, conviction, and compassion. And if you don't have if, if any one of those is missing, then the other person's not going to fully understand or get on board with whatever it is that you want them to do. You know, I'm going to introduce that into my next meeting. <laughs> well, <laughs> if you need someone to do a workshop on it. <laughs> Taking a note, taking a note. But it's just so important that you have those three elements and clarity. I've been trying to think about which one might be more important, but I don't think there's any that stands out above the others. They're all equal if you want to be a a strong communicator. One thing I did mean to say about corporate communications, and I have been doing it for quite a while, it can be different every day. It can be different for different organisations, but I still love it. I absolutely love it. I can't imagine doing anything else. And I think that's probably what helps me get through moments that are challenging because there are a lot of challenging moments or moments where I maybe have self-doubt and have to dig deep to, to turn up, lean in or whatever the way you like to talk about it. I absolutely love it. And I think it's important. I love it too. And I think we wouldn't be doing it however many years, 20 odd years after we started if we didn't, because there's lots of other things you can do in life. And there's always something to learn. Yeah. There really is always something to learn. And you meet someone in corporate comms and you take away something from them that you can integrate straight away. It's, yep. it's not such a defined profession that there is only one way of doing absolutely, things. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just want to come back to the notion of kindness as well, how clear is kind and unclear is unkind. And I know that you're really drawn to things like kindness at work and trust at work. What are some of the things that you do? on a regular basis to be kind at work or to encourage kindness in the workplace? I think you can, you know, it's just part of my nature, I think, to be consciously kind. 
That said, I have a very forthright approach sometimes. And so I'm also probably interpreted on email. I'm not someone who really likes to put a, dear Mel, how was your weekend? Uh, by the way, can you do a blah, blah, blah? I would just say, yep, do it. It can come across as harsh. So I don't know if everyone sees me as kind, but I try to be kind. One of the things I decided to do once, and I phrased it differently, but I will phrase it today as I try not to run anyone over in my race to the end. The way I phrased it in a meeting and everyone's eyes popped out of their heads and I thought I was about to be fired was I said, I don't believe in competition. Obviously, we work in a really competitive world. I work for a very competitive company. I'm actually quite competitive myself. But the kindness is that I do not need someone to fail for me to win. And if someone has a better way of doing something, then I get out of the way and I applaud them. Yeah, I love that. I don't believe in competition either. I think there's enough out there for everyone and people respond differently to different organizations. And I think if you do the best you can do in business and in life, then that will get you a long way. Mm. And being kind and showing compassion to yourself and to the others, that comes across in business. And well, I, think I think people moments, respond to that. And the moments where you find yourself getting angry, getting worked up, getting frustrated, I swear at my computer screen sometimes, when you're in those moments, <laughs> you know, I, I also think this is a trigger moment. Why am I feeling so caught up about this? And there's a little bit of self-reflection. And uh, I also learned something recently. It was in a diversity and inclusion course, but actually what I learned from it was if you're feeling uncomfortable in a conversation or about a topic or about someone sitting opposite you with a different opinion and you feel that blood boil, that is an opportunity to learn. Yeah. Listen and ask questions. So I think that helped me because I wasn't necessarily kind, but if I consciously think, all right, step back, take a breath, really listen, ask some questions, it gets you through the moment. Yeah, and I think that's critical for all kinds of communication. You know, the more you can listen, the more you can ask, and the more you can observe, then the better you are as a communicator because you actually get a deeper sense of understanding of what the problem might be that you can help solve through clear communication. I think that's totally true, except it's a good reminder for me, Mel. I'm writing a lot of notes, as you can tell, in this discussion. And that's because I think I'm pretty good at always anticipating the next question or figuring out what I would say. I'm one of those people who you know, gets in elevators and thinks about the meeting I'm going to have at 3 p.m. and what I might say in that meeting. And so to sort of unlearn that and to actually listen for an answer and not have your next question ready to go is a skill I need to practice for sure. But I think it's really good to be prepared for meetings and for conversations and to think about what do I want to know and what do I want to get out of it and what are some questions I could ask, but then to be prepared to be nimble and to pivot or to listen yeah, and yeah. to have that flexibility in case the conversation doesn't go in the way that you might expect. And, you know, a great example is this, this podcast. I we, sent you a list of questions <laughs> and we, we're not going to get through them all because the conversation's gone in a bit of a different way and that's great. Well, you you will have learned that I like my little catchphrases. So I'm going to give you another one <laughs> now. It's reminding me of another one that I like. So a saying I really like in that vein is hold on tightly, let go lightly. And that means if you're something you are passionate about, truly believe in, a project you believe has merit or an opinion that something is, is the right way of doing something, well, hold on to it, hold on to it tightly. But if things change or you don't have the budget or you're in a meeting, like you said, and someone has a totally different opinion that opens your mind, let go. 
Just let let it go yeah. really lightly. Hold on tightly, let go lightly. I like that. I like that. Because I hold lightly to things that I'm really passionate about. And then if it doesn't happen, I've been holding it lightly mm. and I can move on. Yeah. But I like to let go lightly. Hold on tightly, yeah. let go lightly. I really like that. Mm, that might be one of my new mantras. <laughs> What's one thing that you do to help you become more of a connector and more connectable? I don't know if I take a conscious approach to be more connectable, but um, definitely at work. I figure out who has influence and who has power. And I figure out ways of getting closer to them. So that's not as creepy as it sounds, really. It's just even just acknowledging who has influence and power, which may not be title can help me get stuff done. So like I would say, I would consciously do that. But just more generally, I'm just open. I hope that I'm open. And if I if I meet someone in an elevator, I try and say, hi, I'm that person who just says, hi, how are you? Or good morning as I walk past. I try to make eye contact with people. And honestly, I'm sounding, I'm listening to myself and thinking maybe I'm a little too creepy. Um, <laughs> but I really am. And that's actually at odds with something you said earlier about how did I work from home. I'm actually often just in my own zone the entire day. I'm actually not a chatty person at work. I just sit there. I get stuff done. I talk to the people I need to talk to. I love a social interaction at the coffee machine and it's nice to have someone to have lunch with, but I don't need that in my life. That's probably why you did so well working from home on your own yeah, in your yeah, office. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. But I still had to get out. I mean, you need people. Yeah, you do. That's human nature to need people. Yeah. What's been the most unexpected person you've come across who has been influential because we often think of people who have influence as being leaders or senior leaders but often they're not look I'm going through a list of names in my head but I'm actually going to come back to um, this student of mine at QUT who I think has been influential to me in a really motivating way so I do learn from her but I've loved her courage. I've loved her openness. I've loved her occasional messages because it's really nice to get a little blast from the past and actually much like you contacting me, Mel, where someone says, hey, haven't seen you for a while, saw this LinkedIn post or saw something you did or I was reminded of a moment we had together and wanted to tell you I still think about it and really appreciate it. And you just think, wow, that's just that's a really nice connectedness. And I probably don't do that often enough. And so that was inspiring and influential to me. Mm. Is there any one thing you might do next year or over the next 12 months to be, you know, a little habit that you might create or a behaviour that you might change? No, that's thrown me. Sorry. That's good. That's <laughs> that, put me that, into that deep wasn't on the list. space. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do I want to change next year? Well, you know, actually I do want to change next year. I want to spend more time in Australia next year from someone who lives away and thinks about the cost of travel and we, I don't get as many holidays as I used to as living here in Australia. So I like to use those holidays for fun times. I work in a travel company. I love travel. But I've decided that physical connections – Physically being in Australia makes me happy and is filling a bit of a, a hole. So I would say as a connecting strategy, I'm going to try and come home more often. And I guess you've got offices in lots of different places around the world. So mm, we do. you can come back and work from an office here and still have your weekends here. Yes. And so I've just got to get better at that. So that's why I'm here in Brisbane. I'm actually working from the office here in Brisbane for a couple of days. And then we also have an office in Newcastle. And so I'll spend a little bit of time there too. And so in a way, I'm connecting with the teams. Absolutely. But it's also giving me a chance to see my family. 
Yeah, nice. Well, we've always got a spare room, so you can always come and stay with us if you need somewhere. Oh, sweet. Me too. Excellent. Yes, I'm going to talk to you about that. (laughs) (laughs) We've just got a couple of minutes left. Is there any particular book that's resonated with you? I have such a long list of books that um, I should read. I literally have a pile of books so high next to my bed that make me happy when I see them on leadership and PR and coaching and economics and a whole bunch of stuff that I really should be reading. But most recently, I read a book called A Gentleman in Moscow that I absolutely loved. It's history and it's beautifully written. I um, really encourage it. But what my habit is to read the Financial Times every weekend. That is my happy Happy, happy, happy place, cover to cover. Yep, Sean does that too. He'll buy the Courier Mail, the Sydney Morning Herald and the Australian and read them every weekend cover to cover. And I can get the paper edition in Singapore, which I couldn't hear in Brisbane. Ah. And when it gets delivered, you know, you unwrap it, that beautiful pink colour. Yeah, Yeah, I get a lot of pleasure from reading the newspaper. Mm. That's probably a good thing for a PR person. I think it is. (laughs) I remember when I first started or growing up, you know, in the 80s, we always had lots of newspapers in our house. And I used to read when I was in high school and when I was at uni doing economics for my first incompleted degree, <laughs> I used to read the Financial Review, the Herald and the Australian at least three or four times a week. And I just felt so informed. And I don't read the paper very much anymore. And I would get a lot of my news online, but I just feel that there's so many things I'm missing out on and, you know, I was on Twitter this afternoon and somebody tweeted, I can't believe that they're voting for Trump's impeachment today and I had no idea this was even happening. If we don't get back to our regular habits of finding news from various sources, you do miss big things. No, actually, that would be like the one piece of advice for people in comms is to remember that we create the news. That's what we do. We help create the news. And so let's figure out what journalists care about, what audiences care about. Let's read the publications where we have the opportunity to learn and grow. I mean, I read every day because I get press clips from all around the world, but actually every day I read the Wall Street Journal, some of the Wall Street Journal. I check out news.com.au. You know, I get my feel actually of a lot of different media outlets around the world just to stay in touch with what people are writing about. And that gives different perspectives as well when you get from different outlets internationally. Yeah, and if you're pitching stories, you've got to pitch it in a different way. So you've got to think about, yeah, I'm, I'm very much corporate comms, I guess, Coming back to that earlier question, I, we, we used to do a lot of press releases that were just sent out en masse, and now we do more one-on-one pitching of stories to an editor who's really interested in something, at least a tier one media. Mm. So it's not necessarily scalable, but I think you get a better outcome. Yeah, I think so too. Well, thank you so much. I've loved this conversation and we could keep going, so maybe we'll. Where can people find you if they'd like to connect with you? LinkedIn is honestly the best place to find me. I've made a bit of a decision I'll change my mind again soon. But right now I've sort of retracted from a few social places because I got in the habit of liking my likes and my clicks and my look how many people read my article. And I've just taken a bit of a pause to go, you know what, let's just think about what is important. And it's it's like so true to the topic of connections. Mm-hmm. What's important to me? Where do I need to share my life? And so, yeah, LinkedIn is the short answer. Excellent. I love LinkedIn. I've had a love affair with it for about a year and a half and not do love twitter though thank you so much kim stockham it's been such an absolute pleasure 
Thank you, Mel. It's so nice to see you. I feel very honored and I'm so happy to see your career in this um, podcast taking off for you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you really liked what you heard, please leave me a review on iTunes or a recommendation on LinkedIn or both. The show notes are all on the website, melkettle.com forward slash podcast. And I'd love you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You'll find me at Mel Kettle. See you next time and stay connected. Bye. Thank you.